This isn't just an astronomy podcast. It's a Jodrell Bank astronomy podcast. The Jodcast. Overhead projectors and other foolishness with Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. November 2008 issue. Hello there and welcome to the Jodcast for November 2008. I'm Stuart Lowe and with me this time is Nick Rattenbury. Hi Nick. Hello Stuart and hello everyone out there. Coming up in the show this time, we find out about studies of the galaxy supercluster Abel 901-902. We find out what you can see in the night sky during November. We have your feedback, but first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Fermi spots a new class of pulsar, asteroseismology with the Coro satellite, and progress in the search for dark matter candidates. Pulsars are common in our galaxy and are usually discovered in surveys using radio telescopes. These compact remains of massive stars are left behind in supernova explosions and produce beams of radio emission which sweep across the sky as the pulsar rotates. If one of these beams happens to point in our direction, we see intermittent pulses of radio waves with a period matching the rotation period of the pulsar. Now, researchers using the recently launched Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope have discovered a pulsar which only pulses in gamma rays, making it the first object in a new class of pulsar. Although many pulsars are seen in other parts of the spectrum, this is the first which only pulses gamma rays. The object was discovered in a previously known supernova remnant known as CTA-1, which lies in the constellation of Cepheus, at a distance of 4,600 light-years. Astronomers using Fermi's Large Area Space Telescope during the commissioning of the satellite discovered this new pulsar, and measured its rotation period to be 316.86 milliseconds. Like many radio pulsars, although this object in CTA-1 is located in the expanding supernova remnant caused by a star's explosion, it is moving away from the site of the actual explosion, in this case at an estimated speed of 450 kilometers per second. This effect is due to the explosion being asymmetric, giving a kick to the pulsar, sending it moving away from the site of the explosion. The results, published in the October 16th issue of Science Express, show that the pulsar has an estimated age of 10,000 years, which is similar to the estimates of the age of the surrounding supernova remnant. The technique of solar seismology has been around since oscillations were observed in the Sun in the 1970s. Now, observations made with the Coro satellite have detected solar-like oscillations in three other main-sequence stars for the first time. The CORO, or Convection, Rotation and Planetary Transit Satellite, is a joint mission between the French space agency CNES and the European space agency ESA. As well as experiments designed to look for planets transiting their parent stars, CORO has on board a 27cm telescope and sensitive instruments capable of detecting variations in a star's brightness as small as one part in a million. These oscillations are caused by the same convection processes which generate the characteristic granulation patterns seen on the Sun's surface. Energy generated by nuclear fusion in a star's core is transported to the surface by convection. The granulation effect is caused by large cells of hot gas rising to the surface, where they cool and sink back down again. This continuous process also generates sound waves, which cause the Sun to vibrate at certain frequencies resulting in periodic variations in the Sun's temperature and luminosity. Studying these frequencies and their relative amplitudes provides information about the Sun's internal structure. 
Other stars with similar convective outer layers were predicted to display similar small luminosity variations due to the same processes. Ancoro has now confirmed this prediction. In an article published in the October 24th issue of Science, results for three stars similar to, but hotter than the Sun, all show evidence of these acoustic oscillations. These experiments require long, uninterrupted observations of each star, making them impossible to do using ground-based telescopes. The results show, for the first time, that acoustic oscillations do occur in other stars, but the magnitude of the oscillations were approximately 25% lower than was predicted for the types of stars studied, implying that the models of stellar interiors may need some refinements. Direct detections of dark matter particles are by nature very difficult to make, since they interact only weakly with ordinary matter. But results published in the New Journal of Physics in October could potentially make the search a bit easier. A Canadian-American Czech team, based at the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory's SNO lab, have discovered an effect which could help distinguish between background events and dark matter-induced signals in their detectors. The collaboration operates an experiment called Picasso, a sophisticated bubble chamber experiment designed to detect so-called weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs, which are thought to exist in large halos around galaxies like the Milky Way. Also known as neutralinos, these so-far hypothetical particles are neutral and more than 100 times more massive than protons. The Picasso detectors contain tiny droplets of a superheated fluorine-based liquid, heated to well above its boiling point, suspended in a more stable fluid. If a neutralino interacts with a fluorine atom in one of these bubbles, the energy is transferred to the bubble, which becomes unstable and grows explosively until the entire bubble becomes a vapour. This expansion generates an acoustic pulse, which is picked up by a set of piezoelectric sensors on the outside of the container. However, these vapour bubbles can also be produced due to interactions with neutrons or alpha particles, to which the detectors are also sensitive. When the Picasso team began using the newest versions of their detectors, they discovered that the acoustic signals generated by neutron interactions are significantly different to those induced by alpha particles. This new result was unexpected and is not yet fully understood, but the Picasso team hoped that it will provide a reliable way of rejecting the unwanted background count rate due to alpha particles and help in the search for dark matter detections. And finally... For the first time, astronomers have accurately predicted the track of a fireball before it happened. The asteroid 2008 TC3 was discovered on October the 6th by the Catalina Sky Survey using the Mount Lemmon Telescope in Arizona in the USA. The survey looks for objects like 2008 TC3, but this is the first time one has been discovered just before entering the atmosphere. The impact was predicted to occur over northern Sudan at 02.45 Universal Time on October the 7th, with an uncertainty of about 15 seconds. Caught on camera by Meteosat 8, the impact occurred at 0246 Universal Time on October the 7th. As with other asteroid impacts, as it entered the atmosphere, it compressed the air in front of it, heating the air and generating a spectacular fireball. The event was also picked up by infrasound detectors in Kenya, giving an estimate for the energy of the impact of between 1.1 and 2.1 kilotons of TNT and observed by a KLM aircraft over 1,000 kilometres away. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, since Megan recorded that part of the news, a few extra things have happened. There's breaking news. Obviously, Megan has talked previously on the news about Hubble's problems with its command and data handling system back in September. Well, the good news is that Hubble is now back online after the failure. 
and it's taken a great image of ARP-147, which is a pair of gravitationally interacting galaxies. And it's a very pretty image indeed, and if you hold it the right way, it looks like the number 10. So Hubble scores a perfect 10 with its new refit. It does, but there is some bad news as well, and that's that because I have to test the replacement computer for the command and data handling system, it means that the Hubble servicing mission number 4 is delayed. It was supposed to be in February 2009, but it's being pushed back. What was going to happen in the servicing mission? They're going to replace the advanced camera for surveys, the space telescope imaging spectrograph, and some other bits and pieces, gyroscopes and things. Hmm. So we'll have to wait a bit longer for that. And more bad news is that the Mars Phoenix lander, which landed near the North Pole of Mars, is coming to the end of its life. Daylight is fading at the North Pole as we go into Northern Hemisphere winter on Mars, and it's losing power, so... It's gone into safe mode over the past few days as we record this, and I'm not quite sure how much longer it'll last. It was posting the last few of its tweets on Twitter recently, and lots of people were sending commiserations and thanking it for its excellent service it's provided over the past few months. So that's enough breaking news for November. Let's move on to our main interview, which is with Catherine Haymans about the Stages Project. Okay, hi, so uh, my name is Catherine Haymans, I'm from the University of Edinburgh and uh, I've been working on uh, something called the STAGES project uh, that's an acronym for the Space Telescope A901902 Galaxy Evolution Survey That's a fantastic acronym, of course, like in, in any good astronomy <laughs> acronym it's... Ah, uh, you're nothing in astronomy unless you've got an acronym <sighs> Now, of course, the Space Telescope we're talking about here is the Hubble Space Telescope Exactly, but we actually also have data from uh, the XMM Space Telescope, which is an X-ray telescope, and the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is an infrared telescope. So there are many space telescopes that we've been using for this project, but the big thing we've been working on is uh, the Hubble Space Telescope data. And you've collected all this data on the same object, or objects, if you like. Explain, what is it, this 901-902 part of the academic stages? uh, We've been looking at a very uh, dense region of the universe. It's a massive supercluster, and it has this name, Abel 901-902. Now, this is a cluster that was first seen by a guy called George Ogden Abel, and uh, he went and looked through all of uh, the observations taken by the Palomar uh, Telescope, uh, a long time ago, and he found over 4,000 clusters, and this was the 901st and 902nd cluster that he found. It's a fantastic amount of work, isn't it? This guy looked at... I know. How many in total? I mean, I, him, His whole career was spent looking at uh, images from the Palomar Telescope, which was at the time, you know, the, the best telescope in the world, and it's an amazing resource. I'm sure he did lots of other science as well, but this is the, the best resource, really, for finding really massive clusters in the universe. It must have been a great job, you know, with one of the finest instruments at the time. Yeah. Just going, oh, there's one, yeah. there's another one, there's, no, there's another one, there's another one. Just put your name in front of all of them, you know, <laughs> hundreds of these objects. Oh. Yeah, no, he's... Uh, uh, I found a photograph of him the other day, and uh, yeah, he's quite quite a legend. <laughs> so Abel 901-902... It's a cluster of galaxies. Yeah, it's there. Well, we call it it's a supercluster galaxy. So uh, our Milky Way galaxy is in uh, something called a local group. There are maybe a few tens of galaxies in our local group. Um, now, cluster is sort of more than that, sort of about 100 galaxies kind of all bound together, um, all gravitationally bound together. And then a supercluster is a cluster of clusters. And in this case, there are uh, four uh, clusters in this system uh that are all bound uh, together. They're all at the same redshift or the same distance from um, the Earth. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit quite a supercluster. 
clusters, cluster of clusters. How many galaxies are there in the supercluster? Okay, so there are a couple of thousand uh, galaxies in this supercluster, and uh, the supercluster has got four clusters in it, and each one of them has got uh, several hundred uh, galaxies in it. So why are the two different names? Why Abel 901 and then Abel 902? So uh, when Abel was uh, looking at this cluster, uh, what he called Avel 901, uh, we've resolved now as two separate structures, so we call that 901A and 901B, but they're sisters, and he thought that was one. Uh, and then he saw another one off to the south, which he called 902, uh, which we now know to be connected to, uh, to 901, and then our observations has found this other fourth group of galaxies it's a very small cluster off to, uh, off to the west. So well. even with the the 200-inch Palomar telescope, he would have just seen these objects as just a, a fuzzy blob? Is this um, why he gave them only one name? No, I think he uh, he just wouldn't have seen that there were lots of of, um, of galaxies there. So he just would have seen the brightest um, galaxies and sort of lumped them together as a group. And, and the um, the one that he missed is is slightly fainter, so he just wouldn't have seen it in, uh, in the Palomar data. Hmm. When you're looking at the supercluster on the sky, uh, for instance, if we... Can you give us an idea of how far apart the individual bits of the, the supercluster are? Okay, so it's about the size of the full moon on the sky uh, when you look up. And so they're, they're sort of positioned, I guess maybe there's maybe about a quarter of the moon between them, or if you understand arc minutes, there's maybe about ten arc minutes between each of, the, each of these clusters on the sky. Okay, so what's the fascination with the, the supercluster? Why have you got the Hubble Space Telescope to stare at it? Why have you collected data from other space telescopes? Why? Okay, well, the question that we want to answer um, with this stages survey is what's happening to uh, galaxies in these sort of dense environments in the universe. So we know that our Milky Way galaxy is um, a spiral galaxy. It's blue, it's young, it's forming stars. And uh, when we look at uh, galaxies, we know that they, um, as they grow older, they grow redder, their, their gas burns out, they get dustier because the stars are dying, and we call them old, red and dead. Now when we look at these, uh, these dense environments like a supercluster, we find lots of these old, red and dead galaxies in, uh, in the centre of these clusters, and we see these spiral uh, galaxies much like our Milky Way at the edges. And so what we wanted to answer was, is it just... Uh, when the dark matter is, uh, or the, the gravity is pulling these uh, spiral galaxies into the cluster, are they just getting older and that's why they get redder as they go towards the centre? Or is there some other sort of physical mechanism, some process that is transforming these galaxies as they fall into uh, this massive supercluster? And uh, that's what we wanted to try and answer with this data. So it's simply asking, do the galaxies look the way they do because they're just getting older or are they somehow interacting or something's happening to them to make them change their yeah, appearance. Exactly, yeah. What's what's making them transform? Is it nature or is it nurture? Okay, so how do you go about doing this? Okay, so um, the first thing that we did was get lots of different multicolor data just to try and work out what all these different galaxies were, uh, see if there was anything interesting, were there lots of um, massive black holes, for example. Um, nothing obvious there. Um, then we went and looked at the environment that these galaxies were in. So uh, we looked at... Uh, the hot gas in these clusters, so um, that was using X-ray observations. And uh, what I've been working on specifically is to look at the dark matter environment. It's really the the dark matter in this region that's uh, determining uh, sort of what happens to these galaxies. It's 
how they move and how they, um, which brings them to interact with each other. So yeah, we've been mapping out that dark matter in this region. You might say that the principal characteristic of dark matter is that it is dark. <laughs> yes. And you can't see it. So my question to you is, how did you work out what the dark matter distribution yeah. is so in this cluster? Dark matter is, uh, is dark. That's true. Um, some people say we've only invented it to make our equations work. Uh, is that true? No, it's not true. It really, there really is something out there that we can't see. Um, we've tried lots of different observations now to understand this phenomenon that is dark matter, but it really does appear to be something out there that, uh, is, that has lots of mass, uh, but we can't see it. Um, now what we use is a technique called lensing to try and work out where the dark matter is and how much of it is. So how can we see this invisible dark matter? Well, if you look out of your window, how do you know that uh, the glass in your window is there? Uh, the glass is invisible. Well, now imagine that there are some raindrops on your window and they're going to distort uh, your view through your window uh, so you know that the window's there, that the, the light is distorted by the raindrops on the window. Okay, now how am I using this uh, to actually detect dark matter? Well, uh, now I'm on the Earth. Uh, my view is now to the very distant universe. And uh, it's the dark matter around uh, the cluster that we're looking at that's now distorting that view. Uh, so as the light comes towards us from these very distant galaxies, uh, the dark matter distorts uh, the way that that light travels. So we say that it's lensed. Um, what that does is it changes the shapes of these very distant galaxies. If you like, it makes them a little bit more like bananas. That's kind of the effect that you have. Um, and so it's what we do is we go and get the Hubble Space Telescope to look at the galaxies behind the cluster. Their light has been distorted by the dark matter in the cluster. Uh, it makes these galaxies look slightly more banana-like. And uh, we detect that distortion, or that, that change in the shapes of the distant galaxies, and use that to tell us where the dark matter is and how much of it there is. This is a particular type of lensing, isn't it? Yeah, so there are, there, are, there are three different types of lensing. There's strong lensing, weak lensing, and micro lensing. This is called, what we've been using is called weak lensing. So it's a very, very weak effect, which is why we need the Hubble Space Telescope to look for it. Um, Hubble's great in this um, respect because it uh, lets us really see clearly the images of these very distant, faint um, galaxies and detect this um, very weak distortion, or if you like, a signature that dark matter leaves on the images of faint galaxies. In contrast to strong lensing, remind us what strong lensing is. Okay, so strong lensing. Um, some of you might have seen um, pictures of really massive um, clusters of galaxies and you see these kind of arc-like features around it. Now that's strong lensing. That's when the images of uh, galaxies are really distorted by, um, by the dark matter. It's exactly the same effect for weak lensing, just weaker. So they still get sort of bent sort of like bananas, like these big arcs, but it's nothing as dramatic as you see in these really massive uh, images of, uh, I guess, 1689, just for another number for you if you want to do a Google search. <laughs> Why do we have to use a space telescope to do this? Um, so I guess you're all familiar with the, the nursery rhyme, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Okay, now stars do not twinkle up in space. And the reason why you see uh, the stars twinkling uh, from the ground is just because uh, of the atmosphere. 
Uh, now we're trying to detect this really weak signature um, from uh, the dark matter that's uh, lensing the light from these distant galaxies. And so the atmosphere is, is a bit of a problem. So Hubble's great for that. It's above the atmosphere. Uh, so we don't see this sort of twinkling effect that kind of blurs out the images of the galaxies. We see the images of these faint galaxies very clearly and, uh, and we can use that this sort of this keen vision that Hubble has to actually detect this signature that dark matter is leaving on these faint galaxies. So essentially you want to measure the shape of these background galaxies very, very accurately. And that means you have to have the best optics so that the resolution is the highest it could possibly be so you can measure these shapes. They're exactly. not all blurred out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what then? What then? Okay. Well, once you measure the, the shapes of, uh, of these galaxies, uh, the shapes tell you the, the distortion that the dark matter's introduced uh, how it's changed the light. And then the really neat thing about lensing is that you can go directly from Einstein's theory of general relativity directly to a mass map. Now, there are a couple of pages of algebra in there, but there are no assumptions that we have to make. All we do is we say we know, uh, we, we take Einstein's general relativity principle as, as correct, and that tells us that mass curves space-time. That's, that's the it's that curvature that's uh, that's distorting the path of the light. And we can then invert that process. So we can go back, we can say we've measured the distortion. What was the mass that made that in the first place? Mm. And uh, and then we can make these uh, these beautiful maps of the dark matter. So we've we've made uh, the highest resolution image of, uh, of dark matter that um, has been seen to date of this massive supercluster. And, uh, and what we're finding is that uh, the densest regions of dark matter are holding the oldest, reddest, deadest galaxies, which is what we'd expect. And we're also actually starting to see substructure as well. So these uh, sort of clusters aren't just sort of big spherical balls of dark matter. They have shape and uh, structure. You can even see sort of plumes of dark matter coming out. Almost, it feels like it's, they're almost pulling in galaxies from the outskirts of the cluster, but that's maybe taking things a bit too far. <laughs> What has making the map of the dark matter in the supercluster helped you towards answering your main question, which is, how do these galaxies evolve? What physical process is causing these galaxies to yeah. change their shape and their nature? What has the dark matter map told you about that? Well, um, what we found is a really interesting population of galaxies that we don't see uh, anywhere else in the universe. We just see them in, in this dense environment of, uh, of, of clusters. Um, so they seem to be sort of galaxies experiencing some sort of transformation. Now, they're not in the densest regions of the cluster. They seem to be sort of in what we say in intermediate density regions. It seems to be where they're first experiencing the pull of dark matter that this sort of this population of galaxies that are transforming uh, sort of appear to live. So um, sort of on the outskirts of the cluster, um, we're finding these sort of blue spiral galaxies like our Milky Way in the very densest regions of the dark matter, we find the old red and dead galaxies, and in the intermediate region, we're finding this transformation population, which are uh, really interesting. Um, this is work done by uh, Christian Wolff at uh, Oxford University, and uh, what we're finding is that these, uh, we're finding spiral galaxies, so like our Milky Way galaxy, have the same morphology, but they're red, um, which means there's a lot of dust in the galaxy. So they're still forming stars, but there's a lot of dust there as well. So it's a bit of a puzzle understanding why they're there, um, but we think it's our first clues to understanding uh, galaxy evolution in these dense environments. What's the next step? 
what's the next step? Well, all of our data is about to go public, so we're hoping lots of other people will look at it to also get their opinions on it. There's a whole wealth of, uh, of data in this in this supercluster. Um, but, you know, there are just four clusters in this region, and so, um, you know, what if uh, what we're finding is just related to these clusters? Um, so we'd like to go out and look at more clusters. We'd also like to look at clusters at a different epoch in the universe's history. So what we're finding might be something special just to this um, particular epoch in the universe's history. What if we go back to earlier times in the universe? Would we find something different? Uh, so maybe looking at higher redshift um, clusters is also a new thing to look at. So you're going to work through the Abel catalogue, perhaps? <laughs> well, there are over 4,000 of them. I'm not sure we'd get enough Hubble time to do that. We have to fix Hubble first as well. <laughs> <laughs> we wish you all the best for continuing the research, and thank you very much for your time. Ah, thank you for talking to me today, and thank you for listening. So thanks again to Catherine Haymans for giving us a wonderful interview about the Stages Project. So from gravity to gravitas, here is the Gresham Professor of Astronomy, Ian Morrison with the night sky. Well, there's a nice thing about November. The clocks have changed. We're back to universal time or Greenwich Mean Time as we usually call it. And in fact, you don't have to stay up too late to see the sky. But in fact, if you are prepared to have a long evening session, you have a chance really to see two of the most spectacular regions that we have in the sky. After the sun sets, High in the west, we have the region of Cygnus and Lyra and Aquila the Eagle. I've talked about that region of the sky uh, on Jodcasts that have gone out during the late summer, perhaps August, September. So if you want to learn a bit more about that part of the sky, just go back to one of those earlier Jodcasts. In the south, as the sun is setting, and in the early evening, we have Pegasus, and not far from Pegasus, we have the nearest giant galaxy to us, the Andromeda Galaxy M31. And if you care to go to the Night Sky website, you can find that there's actually a chart to show you where to find it. You can either come up from Pegasus, or you can actually come down from the constellation Cassiopeia, which lies above and to the left of the constellation Andromeda, in which we can see the Andromeda galaxy. I always think it's rather lovely that if we do see it through binoculars or even with just our eyes, the photons that are falling on our retina left there about two and a half million years ago. We're literally looking back into time. But if you're prepared to stay up a little bit later, then we get this other beautiful region of the sky becoming visible essentially the constellations around Orion. The first to rise is the constellation of Taurus, Taurus the Bull, with the bright reddish-orange star Aldebaran forming his eye. Aldebaran appears to be part of what is called the Hyades Cluster, a very rich region of stars best seen with binoculars, but in fact it's actually nothing to do with the Hyades Cluster and is about halfway between the Earth, our Sun, and the cluster. We just happen to see it in the same direction. Up and to the right of the Hyades cluster is perhaps one of the most beautiful sights we have in our northern sky. M45, the Pleiades cluster, beautifully seen with binoculars or a small telescope. 
we'll come back to the Pleiades in one of the highlights of the month. But I do love to look at some of the bright stars near the centre. There's a beautiful little triplet of stars close to one of the brightest ones. And then a double star quite close, where one of those stars is quite distinctly red. As evening draws on, Orion begins to rise above the eastern horizon. It contains the wonderful region of the Orion Nebula in the Sword of Orion below the three stars that make up its belt. Well, as we get a bit nearer Christmas and the New Year, we'll discuss Orion in, de in detail. But really, you have a wonderfully rich skyscape in these early winter months. But what about the planets? Well, as the sun has set, Jupiter is perhaps the most prominent, which is not that high, perhaps 12 degrees in elevation in the southwest. It's quite a low elevation, so the atmosphere rather impedes our view with the telescope. But nevertheless, it is worth having a look at, and even a small telescope will show the four Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, as they weave their way around it. Well, Venus is the other evening star. Sadly, at the moment, it's not at very high elevation, but it can be seen as the sun has set, and again, I'll come back to that along with Jupiter, because they'll both be seen together rather nicely at the end of the month. Well, Saturn, having spent some time behind the sun is now visible in the pre-dawn sky and as the month progresses it's higher and higher before the sun rises. In fact at the end of the month it's actually at an elevation of 40 degrees so if you're prepared to get up let's say at about six o'clock in the morning just before you can have a very good look at Saturn and if you have got a telescope it's perhaps worth pointing out that quite often in those early hours before dawn the atmosphere is quite calm and you get a better view. Now, as I've mentioned before, sadly, at this time, the rings of Saturn are not very open. They're no more than about four degrees away from the line of sight. So the ring system isn't so easily visible. And as a result, of course, Saturn isn't as bright as we usually see it. And next year, in fact, those rings will become edge-on and for a while will be essentially invisible. A nice time to look at it would actually be on the 21st and the 22nd of November, that's in the morning, when it will be very close to the thin crescent moon. That should look really rather nice. Now Mercury, that passed between us and the Sun on the 6th of October, but it reappeared in the pre-dawn sky and reached what is called western elongation, that's when it's furthest in angle from the Sun, on the 22nd of October. So now, of course, in, in November, it's moving back towards the sun. But you will still have a chance to see it during the first week of November at about 6 o'clock in the morning, low in the east-southeast. It's still got a magnitude of minus 0 0.8, which is pretty bright, so a pair of binoculars should enable you to pick it up. But you will need a good low eastern horizon. So that's at least a chance to see it until it comes round again on the other side of the Sun. So now let's have a look at just a few of the highlights of November. On November the 30th, Jupiter and Venus are very close to conjunction. They're within about two degrees of each other in the sky. 
and they'll be seen up and to the right of a thin, waxing crescent moon. I think that's probably going to be one of the nicest sort of skyscapes we have a chance to see this month. That's the 21st, 22nd. Let's hope it's clear on at least one of those nights. We do, in fact, have two other lunar events this month. They're called lunar occultations, when the moon passes in front of something. On November the 6th, it will actually occult the planet Neptune. But sadly, only if you lie towards the northwest of the United Kingdom. Take an imaginary line from the Lizard Peninsula up through York and going out into the North Sea, somewhere around the top of the North York Moors. If you lie above that line, that's towards the northwest and Scotland and Ireland, then in fact you will see Neptune being occulted. Sadly, if you lie below and to the right, that's south and east of that line, you won't, but you'll still see Neptune just below the moon. A rather good thing to try and do is to get on that line where you have a chance to see what's called a grazing occultation, when the light from Neptune just disappears and reappears and disappears again as it comes through the mountains and valleys of the limb of the moon. And I know that uh, track goes very close to Socon Trent in Staffordshire, which isn't too far from where we live here in Macclesfield. It may well be worth making a trip a little bit to the south, a bit to the east, from where we live here near Jodrell Bank, to have a chance to see a grazing occultation. They're not often visible. Later in the month, on the 13th of November, the moon passes in front of the Pleiades, and that's always rather fun, because you see the individual stars just disappear and then sometime later reappear. Sadly, it's the day of the full moon, so of course there's a lot of glare in the sky, and that will make the stars of the Pleiades cluster far less obvious. But it's still perhaps worth having a look. Again, it's about six o'clock in the evening to, to see the moon close to the Pleiades cluster and passing in front of it. We do have some meteor showers during November. The one that we normally talk about, and it's one of the sort of classic three or four of each year, is the Leonids which we tend to see peaking around November the 17th and the 18th. And that usually gives us quite a good display. But sadly, the moon will be close to the radiant. Now, the radiant is where the meteors appear to come from. The, the moon will be near Leo. And so, being bright, because it's not that long after the full moon on the 13th, as I've just said, it will, in fact, really hinder our view probably still worth having a go because some of the Leonids can be quite bright and you may still see them, but perhaps, sadly, not the best year to observe the Leonids. On the other hand, we may have more luck with two little groups called the Taurids. They're, they're very long-lived groups. Um, the Northern Taurids, as they're called, peaks around the 4th to the 7th of November, whilst the Southern Taurids, their radiance a little bit further south in Taurus, they peak over a very long time, from the very end of October to the 7th of November. So either of these showers might be visible. You don't get that many per hour, but some of them can be quite bright, as in fact was observed in 2005. So here's a thought. 
having perhaps watched the fireworks display on November the 5th, if you stay up a bit longer after midnight, looking up to the south, to the right really of the Pleiades and Taurus, you have a reasonable chance of seeing one or two bright meteors. I hope it's a clear night, not just for that, but for observing the fireworks as well. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian. Now, listen to feedback. Thank you to everybody who has been writing in with their feedback for us. Stuart, what have you got? Well, we've had a few emails, quite a few emails this month. We've gained a lot of listeners from an article on the BBC News website and on the Today programme at 10 to 7 in the morning. I didn't realise so many people listened to the Today programme at that time. I listened to the Today programme. It's really good. Do you listen at 6.50 in the morning? No, not at 6.50 in the morning, but certainly plenty of our listeners do. So uh, hello to everybody there. That's because a segment from the Jodcast that we did, Sounds from Space, that was featured on the Today programme to illustrate an article about the Coro spacecraft, which Megan mentioned earlier on in the news. Mm. This is the uh, this is the astroseismology. Uh, it is space basically telescope. looking at how the brightness of a star changes and then converting that into a sound. Mm. So you get the change with time, and you can listen to it. We've had quite a bit of feedback about that. So thank you to Martin Cooper, who said that some of our sounds reminded him of a BBC Radiophonic Workshop output from the sixties, which is quite an honour to be to be compared to that. Absolutely. I mean, these are the guys who did all the, uh, the the crazy sound effects for things like Doctor Who. And, exactly, yeah. Uh, and they were just playing with valves and just the most bizarre, the bizarre kit. And, uh, yeah, okay. It's nice that the universe can be uh, <laughs> compared to a, a, a vibrating saw in a toilet or whatever they were using. To these or even the Jemby drumming, as um, Tom Everson has written in to say. We'll also say thank you to Richard Kneinenberg. Apologies for the pronunciation. To John... Paul Walsh from Ireland, to Max Zado, Damien Law, and Mark Jones. And thanks also to Donna Hansen, Tim Simstad, and Andy Stewart for your feedback. So Nick, you've got Facebook feedback? Yes, and hello to all our new Facebook group members. If you are a Facebook user, do check out the Jodcast group and join, please. So, on the Facebook wall, we have posts by Daniel Stockton Pugh, Lottie Hussein Ryan from Bristol, Jason Bowne from Texas, who writes that if McCain and Palin win the election in November, he's going to transfer to Manchester. And Lucky Green in San Francisco. So thank you very much for all your comments. And do please, yes, post us your comments on the Facebook wall if you're a Facebook member. And on iTunes, we say thank you very much to Tisily, 100th Idiot, The, and Ellipsis for their comments on iTunes. And we welcome any more reviews on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and find the Jodcast page and then send us a review. So however you listen to the Jodcast, you can always submit your feedback to us through the webpage www.jodcast.net. Click on contact, fill in the feedback form and send us your feedback. Let us know how we're doing, what you like and what you don't like. And remember, you can have your questions on astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, universe in general, answered by our very own Dr. Tim O'Brien in the Ask an Astronomer segment of the Jodcast. Remember, you can also get our video episodes at youtube.com slash Jodcast or on the Jodcast website. And you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. So that brings us to the end of this November 2008 show. That just leaves us to say thank you to Catherine Haymans and to thank all of you for downloading us. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Do tell your friends and see you again next time. Bye.
the Jodcast, making astronomy sound better.